before we get started this morning, um, did you guys know that we're having an election this year? Did anybody aware of that? <laughs> I've, I've talked with a lot of you about like how frustrating the political landscape in America is and how for many of us, it's just hard to find where we fit into it as followers of Jesus. Um, so I've got a book recommendation, surprise, surprise. This is called Compassion and Conviction. It's put out by an organization called the AND Campaign. Uh, and it's a short little book. It's an easy read. Uh, there's three copies in the church library. And it basically says, hey, there's, there's two major political parties in America. And if we're going to vote, we should probably engage with one of them. Pick one and then think Christianly about how you engage with it. Because there are going to be some things that you are excited about that your party of choice is doing. And there's going to be other things that because your allegiance to Christ is higher than your allegiance to the government and to being an American and to being a Republican or a Democrat, there's going to be things that you disagree with. And when that happens, how should you respond? And I, I found it very, very helpful. Uh, so if anybody's struggling with that, I would just highly recommend um, picking up this book. You can get it from our library or buy it wherever books are sold. <laughs> um, let's open our Bibles. Matthew chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you can grab the Pew Bible. It's on page 875. In February of 1960 in Greensboro, North Carolina, there were four young college students that saw a problem in their community. They saw an injustice being perpetrated. What they saw was that their people people with dark skin were being discriminated against, left out from common society. And specifically, they noticed that many areas of the city, there were eating establishments, lunch counters that they were not allowed as black Americans to participate in. David Richmond, Frank McCain, Joel McNeil, and Junior Blair all got together and said, you know what, this is a problem. This is not okay. We need to do something about it. So they, just, they planned and they thought and they prayed and they decided, you know what, we're going to go to the department store, Woolworths, because at, at, the, at Woolworths, we're allowed as black Americans to shop there, but we're, we're forbidden from eating at the lunch counter. And so they went to Woolworths and they, uh, they wanted to be good citizens, good customers, so they purchased goods from the department store and then they sat down at the lunch counter. The manager came up and said, this is a whites-only establishment. You can't be here. We're not going to serve you. But they, they just continued to sit there. And they sat there. And the cops were called. But they hadn't really done anything wrong, so the police didn't really know what to do. So they just sat there and sat there until the restaurant closed. And they walked out at closing time. And by that time, the news had spread that this was going on. And the Associated Press was there. And a reporter asked them, what are you going to do now? And they said, we're just going to go back to the lunch counter tomorrow until we get served. And the next day, they came back, and they were joined by about 15 of their friends. And then the next day, word had spread to other communities around the country, and other young people decided, we're going to do the same thing. And what the Greensboro Four did was they started what was called the sit-in protest during the Civil Rights Movement. And it did much to non-violently push forward the conversation about race in America. And the reason I want to bring that up is because 
I want you to focus on the idea that they planned this. They weren't just like walking by the department store one day and said, hey, let's go get a bite to eat. And then they realized, oh, we're not allowed in here. This wasn't just a, a random occurrence of, of um, misunderstanding and, 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 or confusion. They sat down, they made a plan, and they proceeded to critique an injustice in their society through that plan. And so we come to Matthew 21, and I love this section of Scripture because this is just the craziest portrait of Jesus we have, isn't it? You kind of, you read this and you think, wow, this is completely different than what we've experienced of Jesus so far. And it's important to remember that what Jesus is doing, he's ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. John talked about this last week. He has declared himself to be the Messiah, and every step he makes over the next week of his life, which will be his last on earth before his crucifixion and resurrection, is a very thoughtful, planned set of events. And Jesus is piece by piece organizing the things he does, the things he says, the people he interacts with for a purpose. And this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew gives us three snapshots of things that he does after he enters Jerusalem. And I think it's important too, before we look at these, to ask ourselves the question, when Jesus came to Jerusalem, where did he go? Anybody? Eric knows. It's in verse 12. Where'd he go? The temple. Yeah, Jesus went to the temple. Why did he go to the temple? Like, you might just think, well, you know, he's a good Jew. He's going to church. That's, it's bigger than that. In Jewish life, the temple was the religious and social and political center of the entire nation. Kind of like going to Washington, D.C., going to the Capitol building, going to the White House. John last week talked about uh, the, um, the triumphal entry is kind of the presidential inauguration and the leaders all coming into town. Well, imagine a scenario where come November, either our current president's going to be reelected or uh, his challenger will be elected in his place. And then January, there's going to be an inauguration. There's going to be a new president in the office. What would happen if, say, in April, Vladimir Putin showed up in Washington with a giant procession of people? And, you know, he's got his shirt off and he's riding a bear. And, and he, he rides up to the Capitol building and he he puts his hand on Das Kapital or whatever and is sworn in as the president of the United States in a giant ceremony. What would that be? That's like an act of war, right? Our sworn enemy, our, a nation that is antagonistic to us, their leader comes into our capital city and declares himself in charge. This is what Jesus is doing. He's making a profoundly socio-political statement and he's going to make people really mad at him for doing it. But he has a problem with what's going on in Jerusalem. He doesn't hate that the people serve Yahweh. He doesn't hate that the people are operating within the systems that they've been given by Yahweh, but he sees that the system is no longer working. 
When I was a younger man in the, uh, the 1900s, uh, we had what was called dial-up internet. And, and you, had to, you had to plug it into your phone line, and when you were using it, your phone didn't work. And it was really, really slow, uh, and you couldn't, you couldn't watch video, or you could barely see pictures. And it was fine. But later on, we got cable internet, and we replaced the dial-up, not because we didn't like the internet, but because we wanted better internet. And Jesus is coming into town to, uh, to destroy and replace and change the system, not because worshiping Yahweh is bad and the longings of the Jewish people are bad and the traditions that they've received are bad, but because they're not working anymore, and Jesus has something better so, snapshot number one of Jesus' day in Jerusalem. Verse 12, Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. So, I've got a picture of the temple. If we could throw that up. This is a scale model of the temple as it would have stood in Jesus' day. This is Herod's temple. If you see on the, your left side of the screen, there's like a red roofed section. That's where Jesus would have been. Uh, this is where all of the commerce of the temple area was going on. And what's going on here is, is there's thousands of people coming to the feast, right? They live all over uh, Judea and the Roman Empire, and they're coming in to worship Yahweh, to celebrate who He is for Passover. And the way they're going to do that is they're going to offer up some of their income, some of their gifts as animal sacrifices. But if I've come all the way from Turkey or Italy or even Galilee, it's a real bummer to have to take a lamb with you the whole time. They're kind of squirrely and, and, you know, they could get eaten and that'd be a bummer. So what you do is you just take money, just like maybe we would. We would take cash. And you'd get to Jerusalem and you'd, you'd have cash from, you know, Turkey or, or Greece or wherever you live, but it doesn't work at the temple. The temple only takes temple money. And so you have to exchange it for temple money and then you can use that temple money to purchase a lamb or a goat for sacrifice. And all of that's fine. That's just kind of how economics works. But what started happening is the vendors started ripping people off. They started charging way too much to exchange currency. They, they started saying that, hey, you know, only our special animals work, and they're like twice as expensive as regular animals. And we read in history that one other terrible thing happened. All of these merchants worked outside in the city where you would expect merchants to be. But Caiaphas, the high priest, who we're going to meet in a few chapters, he got them all inside the temple because he said, you know what, if you guys are in the temple, chances are you'll get more customers. And, and all I need from you in return is a, is a cut of the proceeds. It's kind of like when you're at the airport and you want to go to McDonald's and the Big Mac is like $19. What else are you going to do if you want a Big Mac? You, you're in the airport. There's no other options. And so the money changers and the, the sellers of sacrifices are set up inside the temple. And Jesus doesn't like it. <laughs> he doesn't like it at all. He goes into the temple and he starts throwing over tables. 
Now, it's easy to frame this as Jesus just raging. Jesus is angry. Jesus is just so, he sees this and he's just out, he's bent out of shape about it. But the Bible doesn't say that, does it? See, Jesus is carrying out a plan. Jesus is very clearly, very calmly doing what he needs to do to bring visibility to the injustice that's happening at the temple. Jesus quotes, It is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. And, and we think of den of thieves as people who steal stuff, and the, and the merchants were stealing from people, so that kind of makes sense. But, but the word is more, more clearly about like insurrection and violence. Some of your translations might say a brigand's lair. That's a word we don't use very often. But what Jesus is saying is the temple has become a place where the wicked have gone to hide. Instead of a place where, where unclean and broken people come to cleanse themselves in the presence of their God and confess their sin and, be, um, and, and, and become open and honest about it, it becomes a place where wicked things happen in dark places under the cover of faith. Church becomes a place to pretend and hide and wear a mask. And Jesus won't have any of it. And then look what Matthew says about the animals. The, very, the specific animal that, that Matthew says Jesus goes after is the, the chairs of those selling doves. I think that's important. Because, see, typically if you were a Israelite coming to sacrifice, you would sacrifice a lamb. You would sacrifice a goat. But if you couldn't afford a lamb or a goat, if you were poor, the Old Testament says that it's okay, you can sacrifice a dove. A dove is a cheap bird, and if that's all that you can afford, your sacrifice is just as good to me, God says, as those more wealthy people's sacrifice of their greater things. And who does Jesus single out? The sellers of the doves. Why? Because they're ripping off poor people. People can, that can barely afford it are making this pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship their God with all that they have. And these people are taking advantage. It's an interesting question to ask yourself, when does Jesus stand up against injustice? And we see it's when the poor and the weak and the oppressed are being mistreated. So he gets done making a mess at the temple. Then what happens? Look at verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, yes. Have you never read, have you, you have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies? Then he left them and went out of the city, to the city of Bethany and spent the night there. So question, we've talked about this before, but who is Matthew writing his gospel to? The Jews. Yeah, Jewish Christians. Largely people that would have soaked their minds and hearts in the Hebrew scriptures their entire lives. So we read verse 14 and we go, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed him. And we think, oh, that's great. That's a very Jesus-y thing to do. 
But anyone that would have grown up on the Old Testament would have thought immediately of 2 Samuel chapter 5. Turn there if you want to. This is the story of King David. King David has just become king over all of Israel. He's been inaugurated in a grand procession. And the next thing he does in verse 6 of 2 Samuel 5 says, the king and his men marched to Jerusalem against the Jebusites who inhabited the land. Jerusalem is not held by the Jewish people at that time. It's held by the enemies of God. And the Jebusites had said to David, you will never get in here. Jerusalem is on a hill. It's highly fortified. The Jebusites are talking smack. You will never get in here. Even the blind and lame can repel you, thinking David can't get in here. So they're on the wall. They're shouting at David and his men, you can't get in this city. We'll just, we'll, we'll back out all the soldiers and put the blind and the lame on the wall and they'll defend the city. That's how easy it is to defend this city from you. Yet David did capture the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. He said that day, whoever attacks the Jebusites must go through the water shaft to reach the lame and the blind who are despised. By David, he said, they have to get their water somehow, figure out where they get their water and climb up, and that's how we'll attack the city. For this reason, verse 8, it is said, the blind and the lame will never enter the house. So because of what the Jebusites said in taunting David, and because of tradition that built up over time, the blind and the lame, it was very clear to everyone, are not allowed in the temple. They're not allowed in God's house. But Matthew says they show up and Jesus heals them. He, he's making the point that this house is a place for healing for the weak, not a stronghold for the powerful. And the chief priests and the scribes who know their Bibles as well, they, they saw the wonders that he did. And then they also see the children. I love this. Like Jesus has just like made a mess of all of the carts and the money changers and he's thrown over tables and then he like miraculously healed all these people and the kids are like, yeah, this is awesome. They, they might not have said that. You're right. What they did say was Hosanna to the son of David. Save us, son of David. And the religious leaders are mad about this. They said, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus replied, yes. Have you never read? He asks the Bible scholars. You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. He quotes Psalm 8. And the thing about this quote that's important is that in Psalm 8, the psalmist is talking about God, is talking about Yahweh preparing praise for himself through the mouths of children. And Jesus is identifying himself with Yahweh. I hear it frequently that, you know, the, the Jesus never claimed to be God. He was a good teacher. He was a great man. Maybe he did miracles, but he never said he was God. You Christians are crazy. Jesus claimed that he's God all the time, 
over and over and over again, he identifies himself with Yahweh, the God of Israel. And that's why everybody's so mad at him. That's why they want to kill him, ultimately. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, the town over on the other hill, and spent the night there. What does Jesus have planned for the next day? Early in the morning, verse 18, as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. At once the fig tree withered. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed and said, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? Jesus answered them, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. So this is like the weirdest story in the gospel, I think. It's, it seems just totally out of character for Jesus. And, and all of Jesus' miracles, think of all of the amazing things that he does. He, he makes food where there was no food. He opens up blind eyes. He helps people walk. He walks on water. There are all these things. He never like tears stuff down. He never breaks. He doesn't like, you know, do Harry Potter style spells and shrivel things up. And, you know, he doesn't do that. Except here. And he's just like, he's hating on this tree because it doesn't have breakfast for him. And you think, that's super weird. In my house, we call it hangry. (laughs) See, Jesus is doing this on purpose, though. He's got a plan. Because, see, he, he is acting out a prophetic act. If you, if you ever read the Old Testament prophets, they're pretty crazy guys, and they're often called by God to do crazy things. For instance, um, Isaiah was asked to walk around town naked for a year to show the people what was coming for them if they were disobedient. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel was told to lay down on the ground and build a siege works against his body as an illustration of how Jerusalem was going to fall. He was also asked to cook bread over human dung to illustrate the, how little resource the people were going to have. And, and the best part of that is he goes back to God and he says, God, can we just use animal dung? Because I'm really not uncomfortable with human dung. And God's like, yeah, okay, fine. But there's over and over and over again, the prophets do these crazy things. And this is what Jesus is doing in the lineage of the prophets. He's doing a crazy sign to illustrate something. Over and over again in the Old Testament, Israel is repeatedly connected with the fig tree. Jeremiah 8, Jeremiah 24, Hosea 9, Micah 7. If any of you have any like Bible search software, you can type fig tree into the Hebrew Bible and you'll find it over and over again. Figs and fig tree imagery is constantly connected to the people of God. And so he comes to the fig tree full of leaves advertising health, right? A healthy, grown tree ready to give its fruit. And he looks around and there is no fruit. This tree looks healthy, but it isn't. And he's illustrating that the Jewish nation has been praying 
and studying and giving to the poor and and acting out the ritual sacrificial system. And and the whole thing is just a show. There is no substance. And he curses the tree and it withers and dies. This, This system that Jesus sees in the temple is broken. And Jesus is here to destroy it and replace it with himself. And then he says this, he says, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain, be lifted up and thrown in the sea, it will be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Now, I don't think that Jesus is taking this moment to go into like a detailed theology of prayer. He's talked about prayer frequently in his ministry. Um, So, I, I don't really think the point of this is like, well, you know, we can like re-landscape our houses just by praying and moving rocks around and stuff. That's not really what Jesus is saying. Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives, and across the way is the Mount of Zion, and the temple is on the top of it. And I, what I think he's doing is he's saying, if you have faith, this mountain, you can throw this mountain into the sea. And he's pointing to the temple. The reason I think that is because in just a couple chapters, Jesus is going to pronounce a curse on Jerusalem. He's going to pronounce judgment on Jerusalem. He's going to say, I longed to gather you up as my people, but you would not have me. And now you are desolate. He tells his disciples that the temple will be completely destroyed. It's an act of prophecy on his part. And what Jesus is saying is that it's his own faith in the moment to walk into that and pronounce that prophetic word against the city. He knows his father has told him what's going to happen, and he's going to claim it in a couple chapters here. And we know from history that in the year 70, less than 40 years from now, Titus and the Roman legions would come in and they would destroy Jerusalem. They would tear the temple to the ground, and it's going to alter the Jewish faith forever. Think about the season we've just come out of. I mean, we haven't really come out of it yet, but it's holding on tight. This pandemic, this lockdown that we experienced, you can't come to church. And we have to remind ourselves that the church isn't a building. We say that all the time. The church is the people of God. But, but when you can't come to the building, it's weird. It's like, what are we going to do? There's all this freaking out about the building and, and, and what are we going to do and, and, and can we get there and can we get back to it and when's it going to be back to normal and it's disrupted a lot of our rhythms. We believe that it's temporary and we also believe that this isn't the center of our faith. This is just a convenient place to gather. But imagine if you believed that God lived here that everything about your relationship with God was centered around this space. You can't really engage with God correctly unless you physically come here. Your prayers, your offerings, your devotion, hearing God speak to you is all centered around what happens in this room. And then you can't come to this room anymore. And it's not just for a while. It's we tore it down and there's no other alternative. Imagine how that completely upended the faith of the Jewish people. 
Like they have, they have no way to engage with their God anymore. And over a series of a couple hundred years, we see as we read through history how they kind of like figured it out, how, to, how we can't sacrifice and we can't, we can't uh, offer prayers to the temple and we don't really know how to do this anymore. And, and you see if you go to Jerusalem, they have the Wailing Wall, which is the only piece of the temple that they can find right now and they put prayers in it. And, and, and they're floundering because everything that they've built their faith on has been destroyed not because, not because Jesus doesn't want his people with him, but because just like we upgraded our dial-up modem, he is a better temple than the temple itself was. So, so what do we do with this? Some of, us, some of us don't like this Jesus, do we? He's like, he's cranky, he's angry. We prefer him to be like kind and, you know, bringing the children and sitting them on his lap and talking about love and those things. But we see that while he's calculated, while he's planned, he's also angry. He's got something against God's people. What makes you angry? I know if you're thinking like, well, I'm not going to say that because that's not godly. There's a lot of ungodly things that make me angry. But sometimes I think there's good reasons that I get angry. A few weeks ago, we were at the park. My wife and I were sitting on a blanket talking to some family, and and our girls were playing in the distance. and, And all of a sudden, I heard somebody go, are those your parents? And I, my, my interest was piqued. And, and I looked, and there was an older gentleman near my girls, and Karis said, yeah, that's my mom and dad, and, and he goes, you need to tell your mom and dad that if they're going to give their kids such weird names, they should put a sign around their neck so we know what to call you. And I thought, what, what, <laughs> what's, just, what's happening right now? <laughs> I didn't have a framework for that, but I started to get angry. I mean, I was kind of angry because I picked out their names and I like them. <laughs> but I was also angry because this guy was coming down on my kids for reasons that they couldn't possibly understand, especially my youngest. And so I had to decide, what am I going to do with this anger? So I walked over there and I, I, for a minute I thought, I could probably take the guy. I mean, he's like, <laughs> he's like 70. I think I could, you know... But I, I walked over and I, I introduced myself and I said, my name's Zach. And he goes, oh, that's a good name. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And <laughs> I couldn't convince him that he was wrong in saying this to my children. And he finally wanted me to think that he was joking. And I said, well, my kids don't think you're joking. And, and he finally just went, ah, and wandered away. And, and that was it. But I just, I, I rarely feel that kind of anger that's like, for the injustice that someone else is suffering. But that's the kind of anger that Jesus felt when he walked in Jerusalem. Jesus is angry about the way his creations, his people, the men and women made in his image are harming themselves, they're harming each other, they're harming the world that he's made for them, and they're even dishonoring him in their lives, in their actions, in their words. And we see him 
make these prophetic declarations of his anger, flipping over the tables and cursing the tree. But in reality, what's Jesus going to do with his anger? Where is he going to take his anger? He's going to take it to the cross. Jesus' anger is going to go with him to the cross. See, the, the anger of God is poured out on sin on Jesus on the cross. We remember that every week when we take communion and, and we, we imagine the body of Jesus in the bread and the, and the blood of Jesus in the cup and we remember that His broken body and His shed blood is the consequences of His and His Father's anger against sin being dealt with. And we see Jesus angry. But the good news is, Christian, if you are, if you are His, if you have given your life to Christ, there's no anger in God's eyes towards you. God isn't angry with you anymore. God's anger towards you for the ways that you're broken, for the ways that you've screwed up your own life, for the ways you've screwed up a ton of other people's lives, for the ways you've rejected Christ over and over again, all that was paid for on the cross. And all of that anger has been absorbed by Jesus. But conversely, if if you haven't done that, and I don't mean like, well, I prayed a prayer once or I, I'm an American, so I must be a Christian. If you, if you haven't actually bent your knee to Christ and said, my brokenness, my sin, all the junk in me is something that I can't deal with and I need you to do it for me. I give my life over to you and I want to follow you wherever you go. If that's not you today, then God's anger is still out there. God looks at you, not because He hates you, but because He loves you, and He's angry because you're hurting yourself. He's angry because you're hurting other people. He's angry because you're harming the creation that He gave you, and He's angry because you've turned your back on Him. But the solution to that is not to do what they had started doing in the temple, which was just try harder and do more and make more rules and, and, and try to be good enough. The solution to that is to confess, to say, yeah, I am broken. I am screwed up. And Jesus, I need you to take the sin from my life. I need you to pay the penalty for the things I've done. which is what he does on the cross. And so as we think through Jesus walking into Jerusalem, making a plan, he's not haphazardly running around. He's got a point. He has people that he's trying to reach and he's got a message he's trying to give. God loves you, but God is not happy with what's going on. And you have an opportunity to turn around. And the, na the nation as a whole, the city didn't do that. And Jesus says, time's up. In a few years, you're going to be destroyed and everything that you can't hold dear is going to be gone. We have the same opportunity. Jesus comes into our lives and says, hey, I love you. 
but things are broken here. Things are not working. You have an opportunity to turn around and follow me. But if you don't, know that it's going to end badly for you. The good news of Jesus is that he he lets the blind and the lame into the house, right? He lets the broken people into the house that have been forbidden by everyone else. And he says, no, I I see what's going on in you and I want to heal you. Jesus offers healing to us this morning. Even in the midst of a warning of coming judgment, there's a way out. I would just encourage us as we take communion, as we sing, to reflect on the gift we've been given in Christ. If you're a Christian here this morning, God's anger has been washed away in the blood of Jesus. It does not exist anymore. He loves you as a son or daughter. And if you're not a Christian, the gift that you have a chance to follow Christ. You have an opportunity to walk with Jesus, to say, I can't do it. I need you. And be gifted the same gift of God's anger being wiped away from your account. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.